Well, good morning. <clears throat> I got to say hi to a lot of you. I got to meet a few of you that are new here today. I want to welcome those of you that maybe are uh, new to Cornerstone. Glad you're hanging out with us. Um, this, is, this is our spiritual family, so we're glad you get to be with us today. Um, we hope that really at the end of it, that while well, on one end, we truly do want you to know us, but most importantly, our lives center around the person of Jesus. We want you to know Jesus Christ. So I pray everything that we do today will allow you to encounter the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So we're glad to, glad to have you today. We're in the book of 1 Thessalonians, and maybe for those of you even, I was a new believer one time. I didn't know where 1 Thessalonians was. If you go to the front of your Bible, you can look that up. You'll be able to find it kind of in the, in the context section. Or even if you got somebody sitting next to you, just go... Hey, where's this First Thessalonians thing he's talking about? And if, if they don't know, just mock them for a little while that they should know. <laughs> no, don't, don't mock. That's not our family. Well, not exactly. But just, if you do, just, you can go to your Bibles if you have one. If you're not, we'll, we'll have it up on the screen. We want to make sure people really are able to see God's word. We believe fervently that the Bible is truly what it says it is. It's God's word. And it speaks truth in how we're supposed to live, the lives that we're called to live, but most importantly, to know the God of the universe. So what we've been doing is teaching through it. And what's so cool about it is, is right now we're about ready to hit kind of the, the thematic climax of this entire letter. Everything has been building to this point. And last week, Christian called it a laundry list. I was like, a laundry list? Come on, man. We can do better than that. I reprimanded him. <clears throat> no, I didn't. He did a great job last week. But... I think just the whole point is, is he's getting to this point and he wants now people to go live in light of what he's just said. I think any time that we open up God's word and teach God's word, it's not just for us to know things. It's so that we might now, like even in our hearts, just be excited and thrilled about the God of the universe, to know Jesus, to, to fall in love with him, but also so that we might even know how we're supposed to live. This is important. We, we, if we don't live this thing out, then it's almost like who cares? Everything within God's word is designed to be lived. And now he's coming to this end in which he's going to call people to live. But I love this. Paul never asked people to do something before first telling them why. And he spent the first five and a half chapters giving us a reason of why we should now follow and live for Jesus. Now, back in 4.1, what he did was, or excuse me, in 5.11, he what Christian talked about last week is the whole now theme of everything that's about ready to happen in 5, kind of 12 through the end of it is to talk about how do we build each other up or how do we begin to come alongside of one another and to help one another to become who God's called us to be. It's all based out of chapter 4, verse 1, when we were talking about this idea of how we ought to walk to please God, or even by the time we get to verse 12, so that we might walk properly towards outsiders, maybe those that don't know Jesus. My heart is always that we would walk rightly before God. That's one of the things that Paul talks about here, but it's also supposed to rock, walk rightly towards those we encounter, our, our neighbors and our friends and our coworkers and our family. We believe wholeheartedly that we want to speak the gospel, but we believe the gospel is something designed to be lived in front of people so they can see how it is that we've been transformed. Not perfect, right? None of us are perfect. Just ask my kids about me. I am not perfect. Ask my wife. We're not perfect, but God hopefully is doing a work in us so that we might show people what it means to be a follower of King Jesus. But today what we're going to do, and this is where this word peace is going to become important. If you look down in verse 13 of chapter 5, he talks about this idea of 
peace that's supposed to happen. Be at peace, he talks about. There's the first comment which is said, and then the second time we talk about it is in verse 23 where we talk about the God of all peace. That there's this cool way in which when we live rightly in, in the way that God has designed us to live, we'll talk more about that as we kind of study this text out, but we begin to display authentic peace. Now, sometimes we think of that as like emotional peace or maybe even maybe intellectual peace or psychological peace in which there's a concept of that in which we're designed by God to live. But really, he's just talking about this way in which we live with one another. It's a peace in which we are living in a way that we were designed or intended by God to live. And therefore, there's this thing called peace, and we'll get into it. But going into it, the main thing that we're going to talk about is is the way in which now he's going to talk about our relationships and how our relationships work in such a way that this peace starts to be brought to bear. So in verse 12, he's going to start with this group of people. We'll just for right now call them leaders. We'll clarify it a little bit more. But in verse 12, he talks about this idea that we ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you or over you. That's where we get the idea of a leader. And to admonish you. That's what they're supposed to be doing. Now, what's so critical here is we're not exactly sure what the reason was of, of like why Paul was like concerned about those leading and those following, but it may have been simply just the fact that he just had a concern. But one of the things that I've learned while studying through the book of First Thessalonians is not just that Paul had a concern. I think the bigger issue is, is that he didn't have time to appoint elders like he had in other churches throughout the book of Acts. We find it clear back in his first missionary journey that wherever he would go, he would point these leaders called elders. And the, the role of them was to give a structure to the church so that they might live like God's called them to live. More than likely, because he kind of, in a, like I said, in a kind of a haste, he, had to, he was forced to leave. He wasn't given the opportunity to appoint anybody. And so the question is then, is how were these people supposed to know who their leaders were? He never appointed them. So at the back of the kind of end of their question is they, they had to then form organ- organically. So how would they know who they were? Well, the clue, if you look down in verse 12, in the ESV, the people who translate it use the word respect, and I understand how they got this interpretation, but that word literally means to know. There was a way in which now these group of people, and we'll explain the significance in a minute, but this, this way in which people now would be able to know or to acknowledge or to identify their leaders. That's really what he's saying is, is that when he talks about, we ask you brothers to respect, the idea is we want you to know who these people are that are supposed to lead you. So there's going to be this way in verses 12 through 13, because he didn't get to appoint these leaders in which they were going to be able to watch and there were going to be certain characteristics that were going to come out of these leaders' lives that were going to identify them as the ones that they were supposed to follow. Now, here's what's really cool and what's so useful about what he's, he's been doing all throughout the book of 1 Thessalonians is he's constantly using family language. Like even down in verse 12, we see this, that there's this way in which now you're going to see these, these brothers and sisters in Christ. That's who he's calling them to. But even if we go back into chapter two, we even talked about this idea that Paul and Timothy and Silas were parents. That in some way, these leaders that are in front of him, they were gonna be people that were gonna reflect an idea of maybe a family. There's this way in which they're gonna be able to look at these leaders. And the way that I'm gonna talk about it is, is that in a lot of ways, they're gonna look like spiritual parents to them. 
Now, leadership at this particular point, when Paul is starting churches, it's pretty early on. This is one of his first letters that he's had. It was kind of primitive at this point. Like I said, he had installed elders at different places, but there was this way in which still these people hadn't seen leadership outside of Paul and Timothy Silas modeled in front of them. But the leaders he was referring to in this particular context were probably the ones that were the owners of the homes in which the people met. If you remember right, we talked about this guy named Jason who at that particular time in Acts 17, when when he was the one that got attacked, he got dragged in front of the city and he was the one that bailed everybody out of jail. There was a way in which Paul, even in, in, or excuse me, Luke in the book of Acts was already identifying this was a unique leader in front of them by how he particularly acted. And so in this case, probably because we talk much more at this particular time about households, these people that were kind of the ones that owned the houses in many ways kind of became the the parents to the people that were in there. Just not just any parents, but good parents. But what does that mean? Well, these leaders Paul had in mind, let me just say this. It's not just because they were rich. It's not just because they were powerful. It's not just because they owned a home that they would have to be known or identified But there were certain characteristic traits that he's going to begin to walk through. And you find these down in verse 12 when you see where he talks about the way that you're going to know them is that they labor among you, are over you in the Lord, and here's the word, admonish you. That's the way in which they would be known. But what we have to do is kind of take a deeper dive in this so we can kind of understand those characteristics because I don't think it was just for the people of Thessalonica. I actually think leaders, so me as one of the leaders here within Cornerstone or Mike who came up here or Christians who has preached or any of the ones that are the leaders amongst Cornerstone, these are the characteristics that, of which they are to be. And so as we read this, this is what you should actually even look for in our lives. The first characteristic, if you look down there, is this, that they labor among you. That word means to labor to the point of exhaustion. When you add it to the idea, then it's to be done among you. This word has the sense of just a toiling exhaustion for the needs of those that they oversaw. Anybody that's ever been a parent before, you know that to parent is toiling exhaustion. You can even already see this idea within it, this idea of these spiritual parents that are supposed to come along a side of them, and they had a characteristic that they wanted to make sure that it all ends and in all ways the spiritual family is cared for. Not only that, but they wanted to make sure that the family represented well the name of Jesus in the community that they lived. I remember when I went to college one time, you know, you don't, I didn't understand this at 18. But I remember my dad taking me out and he looked at me and he said, Todd, what's your last name? And I said, nice longer. And then he kind of looked at me and he goes, don't forget, that's a funny name. No, he didn't say that. (laughs) He, he, He looked at me and he said, don't forget, that's the name you represent. When you go to college, you're not just going to college as Todd, you're going to college as Todd Nicewanger. Don't forget that. So these parents of what we're talking about here, the ones that labor amongst them, it's not only that they carried the idea of, again, how they were to labor amongst them to care for them, but they were training the family to represent the name of Jesus extremely well. They guarded, they protected, but they wanted to make sure that the family stood in good standing. The second characteristic, if you look down there in verse 12, is they are 
over you. However, the idea of being over, probably like we understand it, it's not that helpful. It's not that they were primarily over them, like in the sense of, an, of, an, of a hierarchy, though that was kind of, no doubt, I would say that was an aspect that was going to come out of it. But more than likely, this word was used as a sense of protection. They're over you. They protect you. These leaders to whom Paul was referring, no doubt, were, were probably consisted of those who had status, they had wealth, they had privilege. They were ones that really did have power within the particular community in which they live. Now, what it meant that they were a protected class of sorts due to their financial position. They were a protected class due to maybe defined status within their particular community. It could have been any number of things in which they enjoyed. But when you look at this text, they were to now use the advantage that God had given them for the spiritual family. He said, Paul says, when you look at them and they're over you, they are not going to use you as shields from the world, but as over you, they are going to be the ones that protect you. And the key idea is that amidst turmoil and difficulty, these leaders, these spiritual parents, they will be the ones that protect you from the blows of life, from spiritual family on the one hand, but they're also the ones now that are going to help you in protecting you to help you to live how Christ has called you to do. They're going to help you embrace your new identity. The way that I would probably put this is, is that they were protectors of sorts. God used them to provide, a, I would say this, like a, a healthy environment for everyone to mature and everyone to flourish in who Jesus was. Paul says, when you see them, you will identify them because they're going to create this sense of protection around the body that people might be able to truly grow in who they're intended to be, to be like Jesus. And then there's a third one. When you look down in verse 12, he says, they'll admonish you. Now, when you take the two ideas that were talked before, this idea of spiritual parenting as the leader, we kind of understand what admonish is. In fact, if you've ever parented before, you know you feel like a vast majority of your time is spent admonishing. Why? Because the little ones to whom you've been asked to care, they need help. The difficulty is, so do you. The idea is, is these are the ones that look around the community and from this sense of being these ones that were going to use their power, their prestige, everything about them to protect you, these ones then that were going to be like parents over you, they were going to make sure that the family knew how it was that they were supposed to live and that at any point, if any family member, including themselves, weren't living how we were supposed to, they were going to come alongside and they were going to admonish. They were going to correct. They were going to train. They were going to teach. These spiritual people were the ones that made sure at the end of the day that the family was living out the characteristics of their father in heaven and they were to begin to look like his true son, Jesus Christ. Paul says, those are the three things you're going to see within these people. These are the true leaders. Look for them. Now, if you put all these ideas together, I seriously think that the picture that Paul seems to be painting of a healthy family, this household now that, that maybe over time begins to look like it's supposed to, those that are maybe better off, and I'll just kind of put that in quotes because it could be better off in any kind of a way, they're the ones who demonstrate their love and they accept their responsibility as spiritual parents. And by the way, we might spiritual father, we might spiritual mother, but there's these ones in which now we come alongside of people in a grander sense 
And we make sure that all the spiritual and the material needs of a church is taken care of, not perfectly. The leader of your Bible study, or even me as the lead shepherd of Cornerstone, we can't do everything, but we're to do what God has empowered us to do to create an environment in which God's people are able to carry out what they're supposed to do. And this, by the way, would have been crazy within the Roman Empire. Because generally people use their power, they misuse their prestige, they misuse their money, not to help those that were in need, but more importantly, to help themselves to get to the top of the heap. But you know this, when Jesus came in and came preaching, they asked Jesus, who's the greatest? And what did Jesus say? The greatest amongst you will be what? The least. And the least amongst you will be the greatest. In other words, he took how power and prestige and money were viewed and he flipped them upside down. And so what Paul was saying is, you will know who these leaders are because they're the ones that are gonna flip the whole leadership paradigm upside down. And instead of using you for their own means and ends, they're gonna take what is theirs and their power and prestige and privilege and they're going to use it on behalf of you. That's what leaders are supposed to look like. They were supposed to be these good parents. And when you consider this idea of spiritual parenting, the the role that they're supposed to play, that's why when you get to verse 13, Paul tells, I didn't go through any of my slides, sorry. Paul tells, I'm terrible at this. Look at verse 13. He says now to the people, in light of their work amongst you, in light of what they're doing, verse 13, esteem them very highly. In other words, those of you that are the spiritual children of sorts, and again, just understand this, of sorts, I'm not trying to call the church family children. It's just that's how Paul was kind of talking. He was trying to convey an idea of a family. But these leaders then, the ones that do this, now you give deference to them. You come alongside of them and, and you give, you assume that these people have the best of you. And that's why he uses this word to esteem. But he doesn't use the word esteem in just any ways. He says, do it from a place of love. In this upside down pyramid now that he's talking about, this, this new kingdom that he's talking to you, these ones then that climb underneath you and do everything that they can to help you to engage, to be the people that God intended you to be because of their work, what I want you to do is I want you to esteem them. Meaning I, what I want you to do is not act like those that are around you that are, have constant wonder about what these leaders are doing or constant now chastising of the leaders amongst you or constantly mocking the leaders in front of you or saying to their face, you're gonna do one thing and do another. I want you to be different and come alongside of them and say, how can I help? What do we need to do? See, it's this upside down thing. Now, what's so cool about that is when you put it all together, this is where we run into this idea of peace. When leaders are acting like they're supposed to act and when, when the people that are part of the church now, the kind of the spiritual children within it, he says to them, when we are acting like God has designed us to act, we'll be at peace we'll actually start to be the people that God intended us to be. We'll start to live and to operate. But but the question is, what is this peace? It's when God's family acts like God's family. It's when it looks like it's supposed to look. 
It's when it starts to have this flavor within it where people look at who the church is and oh my gosh, we start to go, that group of people, they look like Jesus. On some ends, Jesus exemplified his authority in which he came in and he even said to the people, I do have authority to do what I'm doing. But you know this, Jesus Christ never used his authority as the means of coddling his own power, but instead he used his authority and power and strength to help others be elevated. And even in those times of submission, when he was submissive to the Father or even submissive to government and power over him, he used that as an opportunity not to be rebellious and not to shake his fist at the world and not to tell the world what to do. He quietly oftentimes talked about it. Like when they came to him one day and they said to him, hey, Jesus, what are we supposed to be about taxes? Speaking of April 15th. <laughs> and he said, hand me a coin. He took the coin and he says, whose picture's on it? They said, Caesar's. He said, give unto Caesar what's Caesar's. Jesus had this way of modeling in front of everybody what the kingdom was supposed to look like. And that's what Paul's doing here. Now, again, this would have been in such a contrast to the Roman way of doing things. During this particular time, it was called the Pax Romana. It was about 200 years in which the Roman Empire would go and they would destroy and they would absolutely conquer all kinds of lands. And when they would come in after destroying you, they would say, hey, who wants the peace of Rome? I guess we will. <laughs> That's not what he's talking about. See, God's people are not on a conquest. We are not on this, this journey to destroy people. We're not on a journey to tear people down. We're not on a journey to try to get to the top echelons of power. We're on a journey that looks like King Jesus where we don't need those top echelons of power because Jesus Christ declared to the people when they went out to accomplish his work, I have all authority in on earth and I have authority on heaven. Therefore, you don't have to try to get power within this culture. I already have it. Now you go and act like me. Go and be the people that live the upside down kingdom. Go and show the people what it looks like to live differently. When people look in on you, they should see, oh my gosh, this people is so distinct and so different. But Paul even had a bigger idea by the time we get to verses 14 and 15. He described kind of in this point, he's going to talk about this idea of peace. And what he's going to do is he's going to grab three commands to kind of just describe what people were experiencing at that particular time. Then he's going to grab a command where it's going to kind of talk about how we're supposed to, the heart we're supposed to bring it about. And then he gave a fifth to kind of explain the outcome that's supposed to happen. Now look at this. Look down in there in verse 14. Look at the first part and that way he talks about it. Now, it's not just the leaders who are to do this amongst you, but now all of you is the point. I want you to admonish, he says in there, the idol. Now, the word idol is probably not the best translation. I understand how they got there, but the idea probably has more to do with this idea of admonish the unruly. The idea is as we look out at our family, and I love this, have you ever noticed some of the best parenting moments are when your kids carry out like discipline within your home and you don't even have to? I know it doesn't happen often. I, I grew up in a home, and I don't know how many of you did, but you just knew flat out that if your parents couldn't figure out what was wrong, they just disciplined all of you. Anybody else have that? <laughs> Holy cow. 
What that did is we turned on each other fast. <laughs> That's not what he's talking about here, by the way. But the idea is, is that our leaders have modeled this. Now everybody's going, okay, now how do we work together in such a way that all of us live in the way God has intended and to admonish one another is to identify when we're off and how to then come alongside somebody other and go, how do I help you to not be off? What does this look like to bring God's word and God's people to bear, to warn, to reprove, to instruct, do all those different things through the power of the Holy Spirit to help you to be the person God intends you to be? This is what he's talking about with the unruly. This is what they were to do. People always say, you know, don't judge, stay out of my business. Let me just say this. If you're part of the local church, we are in each other's business. Not arrogantly or proudly, because listen to, if we don't acknowledge every single one of us in there, we need to be admonished, don't we? This week, and this text has been so difficult for me to study for and then to stand in front of you and preach. I've had a rough week parenting. One of my children came up and he admonished the unruly. He looked at me in a very gracious way. He goes, dad, you're off. Why? Because we get off. He says, in order to have this group of people that live at this peace, they need to do that. But it's not only that. Look down at the next one. He says, I want you to encourage the faint-hearted. The word faint-hearted literally means little soul. That in, in different ways, probably when you kind of look through all, out all the book of 1 Thessalonians, this group of people had experienced the death of people that they loved. They'd been persecuted by non-Christians around them. They were attempting many times to live how Paul had called them to, but they failed miserably. Paul, Timothy, and Titus had took off out of town, and various trials and temptations were just bombarding them on a regular basis. And these people, instead of being large-souled, just became little sold. They were just done. And again, the point is, is that every one of us get here at various points. We're little sold. So what does he tell them to do? Well, he tells them then, look at that, to encourage. What he means by it is, is that you need to reassure, you need to support them. Thinking back to verse chapters two through three, when, when Christian launched us off into it, he talked about this idea of boldness, is that this group of people needed in boldness, they needed a spirit-empowered hope that fueled courage and fueled their identity in Christ. And be clear, they didn't need, let me just say this really clearly, they didn't need self-worth reinforced. They didn't need self-esteem built from the standpoint of the way we tend to think about it. What they needed more than anything in their little solidness, and I know that's not a word, please don't write me about it. Little solidness was to be reminded how much they were cherished and valued by God. God adores them. If you are in Christ, God adores you. He has a goal within your life. He intends to do a work within you. And any good that this world has to offer, any thought within their head of what they think could be the good, they need to be come alongside of and their burdens need to be bore. See, this is why we have to live in community together. And this is why we talk about community all the time is you will never be the person God intends you to be unless you have other fellow followers of Jesus in your life. 
in your life showing you where you're off and you showing them where they're off. In your life bearing the burdens to which God's called you to be because if there's gonna be peace, if we're gonna be the people that God intends us to be, we need to have others in our lives helping us to become that. Let me just say this. If you are trying to become who God intends you to be alone, you will fail. It's impossible. God's word is so clear about it is that we need to be in each other's lives because we need at different points in our life this encouragement that builds us up. What Christian talked about also in chapter five, verse 11, this thing that causes us to be who God's intending us to be. And here's the final command in there. Help the weak, he says. The weakness in this particular case probably wasn't physical. It probably wasn't emotional. It was probably the fact that this group of people felt like they were in a helpless position. They had no hope. No doubt this would affect their physical. It would affect their emotional. But if you've ever been there before, if you've ever seen anybody before, you know what it looks like when somebody has no hope. We get this idea, kind of literally what this word means, this word help, it means to hold against. The word carries like this connotation of protection. It has this idea of clinging to someone, if you could imagine it. I, I'll never forget when our first kid came in after having a, a nightmare. And that child, after having that nightmare, tried to find the most powerful, strong person in our house, so they found my wife. But I remember that child and I remember my wife just clinging to her. This is the idea. And even actually the word talks about this idea of enfolding one. He says in there, not only do we have to now admonish, not only do we have to come alongside and encourage, but you know there's, there's different points in life where you just feel like you can't take another blow. You just can't handle another thing coming your way. And a follower of Jesus Christ comes and enfolds you and becomes Christ to you in that particular moment and absorbs maybe the, the, the blows of life figuratively or, or even literally in such a way that they become the ones who protect you from that one that next step of falling off the edge. Paul says, that's what I want the church to look like because that is when peace enters. When God's protection is coming over them through people and lives of others, that's peace. That's helping them to be who God intends them to be. And sometimes it is in life, we have to absorb the blows for others. But let me even say this, sometimes we have to allow others to do it for us. That one is harder we don't want to think like we're weak. We don't want people to think in any way that we, don't, we have a need. But yet Paul, all throughout all of his letters, reminded people, I came to you in weakness. Because Paul realized that when he was weak, he was actually strong because God's grace is made sufficient in him, not in those moments where he thinks he's strong, but in those moments where he realizes he is weak. To be patient in this case, then he talks about, is actually to be now this, this ones that now are able to be long-suffering. The idea is to pull yourself back from the situation to understand what it needs to happen before in any way you do anything. It's those moments where life is just bothering you and beating you and you don't know what to do, so you just kind of do the first thing that comes to your mind. Paul says, no, that's not what patience is. 
It's that moment when you and your spouse are having that difficult time and they come at you hard and everything in you wants to come back at them hard. That is not what patience is. It's those moments when your kid is struggling to be a good kid. Patience allows you, this is what this word means, to pull yourself back in this situation and not make a decision before it's time. The last two and a half years, I've watched myself. I've watched others. And the moment that life began to hit us hard, I saw the church want to react. We wanted to do something. We got to do something. We got we to engage. But actually what Paul means by patient is, is actually we pull ourselves back for a little bit and we don't necessarily make the snap decision. We pull ourselves long, back long enough because we understand that anger is a terrible thing to engage in. Anger in no way helps you to see rightly in how we're supposed to live that upside down concept of, of, of the kingdom amongst the world. We want to go in and we want to enforce power. We want to get to the top. We want to get what is ours. I saw that this week in my parenting, man. I had a rough moment with one of my kids. That's what I mean. I've had a bad week. And I'm not saying it to, you know, say, woe is me. It's just every time I get ready to teach a text, that's when I have my bad weeks. But I remember one of my kids did something and everything in me just. I was not patient. It's those moments of just being able to come back and go, God, what does the upside down kingdom look like right now? Now, what's so good about pulling yourself back is, is when he talks about these different things, when we look at this idea of admonishing the idle or encouraging the faint-hearted or helping the weak, at different points, people look like the same. Like when I've had to deal with people that I thought were the unruly, I thought, well, maybe they're just weak and I need to come alongside of them and help them or I need to come alongside of them and I need to encourage them. But you know this, when you encourage those that, need to, that are unruly, that's not helping them. But I think the worst one in all of it is, is that many times people that are hurt, many times people that have no hope, many times when people don't know what they're supposed to do, they can act like the unruly. And if you come into their lives and you admonish someone that needs to be encouraged or helped, you are going to damage them hurtfully. He says in there, in order to have peace, just pull yourself back for a second. Understand who you're dealing with. Understand how to enter. And especially verse 15, he says, see that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good. That's why we have to be patient. We have to pull ourselves back long enough to know how am I supposed to enter into this? See, it's right to be angry. Let me just tell you this. There is a place in which we are called to be angry. In Ephesians 4, it talks about this, that there is a place in which God's people are supposed to be angry. We're supposed to look at the evil in this world. Let me just tell you something. We are supposed to be angry. We're supposed to look at the way in which powerful people harm those that are less powerful, and we are to be angry. But in it, he talks about in 426 in Ephesians, he says, but in your anger, do not sin. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. That's not how you're supposed to do it. But instead, always seek to do, he says in there, good. But what's the good? Well, the good has an understanding within it that our God is in control of all things. 
When we see things around us, let me just tell you this, all the evil that's going on in the world, just as a reminder, there is no evil that's happening in this world in which God will not judge it one day. You cannot miss that through the book of 1 Thessalonians. Those moments that you think people are getting away with it or what are we gonna do or, or all the different things that we think when we see evil going on in the world, just know this for sure, that God sees it and nothing goes unnoticed by God. That doesn't mean, though, that we're not supposed to enter in where there's hurt and evil and be the means of helping those that are weak to be able to be protected, to be able to find flourishing inside of Jesus Christ. But we don't do it through doing evil. We do it according to how God's called us to do it. I will never forget when a woman came to me one time and she was been at a different church and been told, you know, you just need to stay in there with an abusive husband. Let me just make sure if there's any women in here, you hear me on this. If you are being abused, you don't stay in there. There is a means by which God has given us to deal with people that are doing evil, and that is to go to the police. You don't stay in it. You use the means by which now God has given us not to do evil with evil, but to do evil with good as the means of being able to deal with what's going on in the world. Now, will we sometimes have to absorb evil and there is an unjustness that comes across? Of course. But Paul is saying, don't lose your heads. We are seeking to bring about peace, which means we live in the way that God has called us to live. I'm gonna skip verses 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, and 22. You'll have to come back next week. I feel like we're saying that a lot. But I want to answer this question both next week and this week. How do we be this? How? How do I be these people that come alongside of others and bring about peace? How do I as a mom or a dad, how do I bring peace to bear in my family when it feels like it is chaotic all the time? How do I bring about peace in my marriage? How do I bring about peace in friendships? How do I bring about peace within a local church? How in the world are we ever going to do this? And I love what he says in verse 23. Now may the God of peace himself. How? We can't, but God can Too often what we do when we see a situation is we run and jump into it as if we have the power, forgetting the fact that the only way that we will be able to have peace or patience is by the work of the Holy Spirit. Remember, the, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience. We can't do it. Why? Because we inherently don't have peace or patience within us. And let me just say this. I am so thankful that the God of all peace has within him the capacity to empower us to be these particular people. I love the fact that while I know on a daily basis I can't, our God is able. Our God is powerful. Our God looks at all the situations, whether I come from the very beginning after humanity had fell, God didn't lose his head and go, oh no, in the Trinity, what are we gonna do? He came into it in that moment, calm. He found out the situation as if he didn't know. And he announced the snake crusher is coming. 
He announced all throughout that there is a purpose and a plan to which I'm going to accomplish. He worked it through Abraham. He worked it through Moses. He worked it through David. He worked it through the prophets. And the culmination of all, when he was bringing about peace, according to Isaiah 9, is he didn't just send anybody. He sent the Prince of Peace. And the Prince of Peace died upon the cross because all of humanity has no peace with God. And when that God, when Jesus Christ died upon the cross, he made peace for humanity to be able to be the people that God intends us to be, to be made right with God. And so if you don't know Jesus Christ, you will never experience that peace until you bend your knee to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, the Prince of Peace. He came and then he rose again. He went to the Father, gave his Holy Spirit, who now gives patience and peace to those who seek him. This is what I think he means when he says, the God of peace himself. Now, it doesn't just happen overnight. He says in there, he will sanctify you. There's a work that he's going to do within us. In fact, sometimes I think we're more worried about our arrival than just the process. All this week, I was so thankful that in the midst of my failure, I have a God, the God of peace, who I could come to through the Prince of Peace and experience the Holy Spirit's power in that moment of peace because Jesus Christ died for me. In that moment in which I was beating myself up, I didn't have to anymore because that did no good. I could quit beating myself up because now God, who had poured his wrath out on his son, did it on our behalf. And not only that, he won't just sanctify you, kinda. This word completely in the Greek means completely. He speaks about it from being your whole spirit and soul and body. God is not going to quit in our lives, Ephesians 1, 6, until he now accomplishes his work, not just in kind of us, but in all of us. He has an intent to transform us and make us different. And it will be an entire life process until finally on that day when King Jesus returns, like we've been talking about, we will finally know what it means to be human, what it means for the intent of God for people when we see Jesus, because we will be like him. I love that. I cannot wait for the day when Todd, who this week was a bumbling ape, experiences the moment in which finally he becomes the person God intends him to be. But... I also love that God's not waiting to the end. He's in process right now. If you don't know King Jesus, today is the day to bend your knee. God will shape and mold you into the person he intends you to be, but he won't do it until you come by faith, until you come in submission to him. But all those who come to him, the Prince of Peace will not turn away. And you will begin to experience this peace that I'm talking about. But how can I trust him? How can I know it? Because he who calls you is faithful. Everything God said he's going to do, he has done. In fact, I think if we were to look back on all of our lives as followers of Jesus, there's been the ups and downs, the scary points we haven't known what to do. But you know darn well, the God of the universe has been faithful. 
He's been there in the joys. He's been there in the sadness. He's been there in everything in between. And his point on being faithful is, is it's a characteristic of who he is. You look at like Psalm 100 where it talks about this idea that our God has a faithfulness that's never ending. It's a part of, of who he is. He can't do anything other than be faithful. While we are faithful, while we are faithless, sorry, even in those moments, our God never ceases to be faithful. And in the last part, he talks about it. How do we know it's going to finish? Because the one who is faithful says, I will surely do it. I'm going to do it. I'm going to make you different. I'm going to change you. Now, this week, when I looked at my microcosm, I'm sorry I'm going to myself, but I'm kind of the example of failure in front of you today is what I'm trying to do. All week long, I kept thinking about, oh my gosh, I failed there. Oh my gosh, I failed there. Oh my gosh, I just kept sensing this idea of failure, of faithlessness. When I was getting towards the end of my week, I sat down with my, one of my great friends that came into town from, uh, from Montana. It's this uh, hick place back in the middle. It's its own country, right, right below Canada. I'm kidding. But we begin, thank you, we begin recounting together just this idea of what God has done in our lives. <sighs> he reminded me what an idiot I was and am. He said, Todd, do you remember when we did this? Do you remember when we did that? Do you remember this? And I was sitting there thinking, oh my gosh, I am being sanctified. We talked about all the things, even after coming to know Jesus, of who we were. And we weren't only kind of laughing about what it was, but it was just this amazing reminder that God is faithful and he will surely do it. And I'll never forget when we were kind of talking back and forth, he looked over at me and he just said, Todd, I love what God has done in your life. Oh. Ever had those weeks where you needed that? He was saying to me, God is faithful and he will surely do it. Now, if you're sitting out there and you're somebody that feels like, I don't feel like God is faithful. I don't feel like he's doing it in my life. I would love to pray for you. I'll be over here. There'll be other elders over here. We're gonna be praying over people. If you need someone to pray with you, we would love to pray with you and to remind you and come alongside of you if you're somebody that doesn't know Jesus and you want to talk about what does it mean to come into a relationship with the Prince of Peace, I would love to talk to you about what does it mean to come into a relationship with the Prince of Peace. But as I finish today, let me just finish with these words. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, he who calls you is faithful. And he will surely do it. He who calls you is faithful and he will surely do it. One more time. He who calls you is faithful and he will surely do it. And all God's people said, amen. amen.